The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Yeah, very good evening, everybody. So much attention is on this kind of middle-order wedding. He's not going to be king, but who cares? He's got a title now. He's got Sussex. Was that going spare? It was one of those counties that nobody had grabbed. Charles has got Cornwall. Most of the show is going to be normal programming, but we have um, access to and, and a leash that we can pull on to get Max Cryer into the studio. He's been to one of these things called the Royal Wedding. He's been inside singing hymns and stuff and actually having some of the cake. So he'll take us through it, what happens, and some fascinating history. That'll be between 9 o'clock and... No, between 10 o'clock and 11. He might come in a little bit earlier. We've also got a, a monarchist, Sean Palmer. He's a historian, Dr. Sean Palmer, um, and a monarchist. He's putting the case for why the monarchy is not only just not very harmful, it's an ace thing, Daddy-o. That'll be straight after 9 o'clock. Oh, this is so exciting. Five-hour exercise and finding something else to say while staring at a camera um, in, uh, just south of Slough in England. Oh, no, we're going to have fun. We're going to resume normal, uh, totally normal uh, broadcasting after 11 o'clock. Grant Smithy's another album, Turning 40. It's Kate Bush's Kiss, Kick Inside, which is awesome. Okay. Uh, science, as usual, this hour, they haven't been jettisoned in favour of the royal family. Uh, we have astronomy with Grant Christie and science report up next with Sean Hendy. Actually, science report up now with Sean Hendy. Here we go. Science report with Sean Hendy this week from the physics department, Auckland University. How are you? Good, yeah. How are you, Brian? Um, not bad. Now, uh, although I'm struggling to get somebody to answer a scientific question oh, yeah. for me. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been to the computer department. I might have to go back to the computing museum, but um, the, the computer heavyweights are just laughing and they say, don't, don't, <laughs> I don't even want to go there. I think it's a good question. Of course I do. Who was the first person, must have been one, to successfully suggest and implement the now time-honoured strategy? Have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? Yeah, right. Who was I, the first person <laughs> to do that? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting, that is a really interesting question. Um, Can you tell your computer science people next door <laughs> yeah. to turn I'll, up for this one? Oh, they're just around the corner, so I'll, go, I'll, I'll wander in and, and, yeah. and ask them. I mean, I, you know, I think um, going back, um, if you think about computers prior prior to the 50s, mm -hmm. um, they, were, they were big, cumbersome, valve-based, machines. You well, know. this is my great hope yeah. that um, it was Alan Turing right. and that they Back should have when been... when he was running the, the yeah. 
trying to decode the enigma. Yeah, they should have had that in the movie. It yeah, would have been right. a great line. Oh, <laughs> yeah. what's going wrong with this thing? Uh, Alan Turing says, um, have you tried turning it off and turning it on I'm again? Sure it would have been a, a cracking line. Yeah, yeah, but with, you know, with valves, right, you didn't want to do that because it, um, you know, they take, took so long to warm up um, and, of course, they, they that's when you can bust your valves. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, it's pro- Quite possibly, when we, once we had transistors, solid-state transistors, which are what our computers are made of today, mm-hmm. and maybe that's something you didn't do in the old Valve days because mm-hmm. it would have taken so long to get things back up and, and going. So the cost of switching it back on and off again um, would have been, yeah, would have been bad. Yeah. So, so who, yeah. So maybe, maybe it took until um, we were using silicon. Mm. Uh, transistors to, to do that and and that was from sort of the 50s and it would be an obvious thing to, to try oh you, yeah I guess so you would have you would have wanted to clear you know back before we had um, uh, we had memory that we were you know permanent memory that we, we could store things mm. you just wanted to clear the thing um, I gosh I probably I mean I didn't you know I was I was using it what was it the ZX 81 where you, you didn't ha- you know there was, there was no memory right you you had to switch it on and then you then you typed in the code, and then you could run it while the thing was on, but as soon as you switched it off, it was gone. My word. Um, so that was would, would have been the opposite. I would have cried if someone had told me to switch it on and right. on again. Switch it off and on again. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, maybe one day we'll find out who it is and there'll be a statue to them Absolutely. in the end. Uh, let's talk about ancient Rome's collapse, written into Arctic... Ice. It's amazing what, how far you can go back uh, with yeah. that Arctic ice stuff, isn't it? I thought this was a really interesting story, pa- partly because we were talking earlier this year about the Anthropocene. You know, when when can you find the sort of the oldest record of human civilization and in, in, in the you know geological record? Well, this was a really fascinating one. This is this is about pulling ice cores out of Greenland mm. um, and looking for lead. Um, you know, they can look look for lead contamination in these in these ice cores, and the major source of lead they think that was contaminating Greenland was coming from mines in, in the Roman Empire. Um, so when you... How does it get in the atmosphere? Uh, so, so it just... You had to... Um, when, when they were mining for silver, mm. so the, 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 um, the alloy that they were mining, it, was, you know, it contained lead, silver and copper. Um, and so you have to smelt it. Right, you have to heat it up to to get out the uh, get out the silver, and in the process you vaporise lead. Lead has a much lower um, melting and boiling point than right. um, than silver, and so you're actually going to get some lead into the atmosphere. And so they've got records of it in in Greenland, and oh. so they can they can use these records to try and figure out well how was the Roman economy doing, right? And the the theory was. When business was booming, you start minting uh, more coins, right? You've got more, you need more money in circulation to deal mm. with your booming economy. And sure enough, they've been able to see dips and peaks associated with some of the things that we know happened huh. uh, during the Roman Republic and Roman Empire. So, for example, the, the, um, the wars with Carthage, um, yeah. Which were which you know Hannibal actually invaded the the, the Italian peninsula did quite well and did quite well for a while mm-hmm. um, and so so during that period they actually noticed a reduction in, in lead ah. in the ice cores mm-hmm. and then when Rome turned around and conquered Carthage there was a big boom again big massive right. increase in in lead and that's that's partly because the economy got going but also because as part of conquering Carthage the Romans actually captured more. Uh, mineral reserves in, in Spain. Yeah. Um, and so they were able to get access to uh, to more of the silver. So, yeah, I found this fascinating. And, I mean, there's a few big events that don't show up, um, such as there was supposed to, su- supposedly um, a, a plague that actually did enormous damage in the in the 2nd century AD. Mm. 
Um, and there doesn't seem to have been a, a reduction in, in lead in the atmosphere at that time. Mm. So, you mm. know, it's perhaps suggesting that maybe it wasn't as devastating as the as the written records make out. Right. The other possibility is they may have also been picking up lead from China. Um, oh. So, it's so of course, the Chinese economy, if you're thinking about sort of big empires at the time... With uh, metalworking. With metalworking. So China was also a place that... that w- potentially right. as a source of contamination. But they think that their, their models of the atmosphere are good enough uh, now that they can actually, you know, they're pretty sure it's actually mostly coming from Rome. Mm. So, if, yeah, really interesting, interesting that one. Um, this has been uh, <clears throat> one of those statements that have uh, we've been waiting for for a very, very, very long time, That's isn't it? That's right, yeah. There's a cure for the common cold. Yeah, although, well, I don't know how quickly it's It's probably not <laughs> going to arrive in time to save you this winter. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the common cold is caused by um, what, what are known as rhinoviruses. Nose uh, virus, yeah. No, yeah, basically. And, um, uh, and of course, you know, they, most of us get them from time to time, a couple of times a year, um, and there's no vaccine. So, so, you know, I got my flu shot. Um, uh, about a month ago um, and we've got vaccine for flu and that's partly because the flu dies out every year in New Zealand so we actually over the summer we're essentially flu free and so it's only one two you know maybe may, maybe half a dozen strains of flu mm-hmm. that come into New Zealand every year I and mean, if we can guess in advance those strains of flu that are coming in, we can make a vaccine for it. And so mm-hmm. that's what's going on when you get vaccinated um, uh, uh, for the flu. With the rhinovirus, there's something like 160. Oh. And they're always, can you imagine that shot? <laughs> um, trying to get, trying to create a, a vaccine that's going to knock out 160 of these rhinoviruses. Mm. So, so it's just, you know, it, it, it can't be done. So you've got to look for other ways to try and combat um, the, the rhinovirus. Um, for most of us, it's it's... You know, it's just it's kind of an inconvenience. You know, three or four days, you're not yeah. feeling so good. Um, you know, some of us probably even still go to work. We, yeah. we shouldn't because that helps spread it, of course. Um, uh, but for, for people who have asthma uh, or other conditions with, with their lungs, cystic fibrosis, it can actually be deadly. Oh. And so actually the common cold does kill people in New Zealand oh. um, every year. And so what? So this, the latest finding um, is finds a way to stop the virus during the way it reproduces. Cause it's, so viruses can't reproduce themselves. So they actually need to get into your cells. And they, they basically hijack the cells to, to, to make copies of themselves. So out, when they're outside your cell, they're, they're basically inert. Right? They're not really alive in the sense that we'd think of. Mm. And so it's, it's them getting into the cells and taking over your cells that, that, that they reproduce. And um, these researchers have found an enzyme, a way to block an enzyme that the viruses, that the viruses hijack in order to assemble their coat. So if you think of a, a virus, it's basically a piece of RNA in a box. Um, and that box keeps it safe and it allow you know it's, it's what the virus travels on when, mm-hmm. it, when when it's moving between cells or between people um, and so if you prevent it from forming that box it doesn't leave the cell um, so you actually stop it reproducing and spreading throughout an individual organism mm-hmm. or from or from individual to individual how do you um, stop it making its box uh, so it's, it interferes so so it, so it uses a particular enzyme in our cells that, mm-hmm. that we use um, and so this particular um, uh, molecule that the researchers in, in the UK found actually just just binds with that molecule and stops it working right um, it's probably not something that we you know if it does work and of course you know these things take decades to work their way through the health system and of course many many of these kind of clever ideas fail when we take them outside the lab once we start actually testing them and 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 to be clear this is just in the lab at the moment Um, but it's likely to be quite an expensive drug and probably you wouldn't 
you're not going to you're not going to pay right. for it just to avoid avoid the cold. But actually, if you've got that, if you've got asthma, mm. or, you know, if you're, or, yeah, if or you're a threat at you, risk, yeah. then then this might be something that offers some hope. All right. Um, now, snail memory. I've, yeah, you can transplant memories. Is this apparently, is this how yeah, this Yeah, yeah. So this is this is um, going. So speaking about RNA, yeah. this is kind of an interesting finding in snails. So, um, a group of researchers um, electrocuting snails, giving them little electric shocks, um, as you do. Mm. Um, and and the idea is to try and train the snails right to avoid the shock. And so um, so that's what the, what the, what they've been doing. And 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 you want to use this to try and test memory, right? Can you, you know, what is it that that that, that you know, when the snail learns to avoid the shock, what's what's carrying that? What yeah. what part of its uh, of its nervous system and its brain it's is got to be a thing? The work? It's it? got to got to be something in there. Um, and what these researchers found is that they could transfer this memory from one snail to another via bits of RNA. So we were just talking about RNA before with the with the flu virus, and so RNA RNA is related to our DNA. But it's kind of the it, it, it's similar to DNA, but it's, it kind of does all the work. So if, so DNA is a bit like the backup tapes, right? And when you actually want to do something uh, with with your genetic code, you you convert it into RNA, and then RNA goes off. And you know, for example, it it, it codes for particular proteins, so it'll actually go to the the ribosome, which makes proteins, and and, and tell the ribosome how to make a particular protein. So our, so um, what they found is by taking RNA out of a snail that had learned to avoid the shock and injecting it into a snail that hadn't yet had the pleasure of being shocked by these researchers, this snail would also learn uh, to avoid the shock. Far so out. this suggests that, that, that some, at least some of the memories, the some one way that, that the snails are storing memories is via their RNA. They're produ producing a particular uh, piece of RNA that codes to you know a particular part of the DNA. Yeah. Um, and that's storing some some memory of of this event, um, and and you can make your snails a bit wiser with a little shot. That's what we've all been all been looking forward <laughs> that's to, right, isn't it? Yeah. A, a, a better snail. Yeah. Um, it's, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, I think it could even have a name: um, experimental paleontology. Right. Um, I had a cat. It was in the backyard, and strange thing happened: a hot air balloon went overhead right. on one of those hot air balloon right, days, right, which right. is beautifully clear. Yeah. And it was quite low. It was interesting. But the cat did this weird thing. It went... It hunkered down and was freaking out. Right, right. It has to be an inherited memory. Right. So Big thing in sky bad. Yeah, because, I mean, I guess cats don't get picked off anymore, right? Like, I don't think, you know, yeah. unless there's something you're not telling us about your cat, yeah. uh, it probably hadn't learnt that response, right? No. Um, so, yeah, so that's interesting. Big so thing in sky bad. Yeah, yeah, something in that. Um, birds definitely have it, and nests, they hunker down. If you yep. put a shadow of a predatory right. bird right. across the nest, they go... Ew. Yeah, although obviously birds have a chance, you know, birds do get predated. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, the chicks haven't learnt this yet. Yeah, it's, I it's see. In right, there. so before they've had a chance to learn it. Right. This must be something um, predatory bird yep. shaped in their brains. Yep. Already. Yeah, from interesting birth. stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, eh? Um, oh, I just want to thank you. Hang on. I'm just getting a book out of my bag. Sean Hendy lent me Stephen Strogatz's sink. You rated it as a book. It's really good. 
Yeah, no, Stephen Strogatz. He's a, he's a mathematician yeah. in the US, one of my favourite writers. He, mm. he, he um, writes really well about mathematics, but he also writes nicely about the process of doing science. Um, mm. And uh, he's got a number of books. So, so definitely look up um, Stephen Strogatz if you're yeah. interested in reading um, some mathematics and mathematics and, and how it's used in the real world. So, sync, highly re- recommend that. I like the bit where he explained if you have a whole lot of toilet flushes. Oh, systems. <laughs> yeah. You get all of them, and if they are connected in any way, they will all sync up. Yep, uh, that's right. And yeah. all flush at the same time. Yeah. No matter what you do. Yeah. It's predetermined. No, no fascinating, yeah. Isn't and it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. All right, thank you very much, uh, Sean Henry. Mathematics Hendy. of toilets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Uh, that's Science Report. And up next, Grant Christie with some fabulous astronomical news. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Astronomy Today with Dr Grant Christie. Hello Grant. Hi Graham. Uh, first up, listeners, we have a couple of links up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, as usual, complimentary to this piece on astronomy. And it's a nice little video of this micro-helicopter that's going to Mars. Um, I hope they've done their engineering and physics. There's not much air on Mars. How does the it's, damn thing supposed a, to take off? Well, it's a serious issue. First of all, the thing's only at this stage. It's an experimental sort of test, if you like. Okay. So it's not going to do very much once it gets there. Hopefully it'll fly and take some pictures, but basically that's basically all. But it's a kind of testing the technology for a future mission two years beyond that. So the, this thing's about the size of a cricket ball, weighs about a kilo, um, and uh, it's got two spinning blades, uh, sort of uh, rotors, mm-hmm. uh, and each one of those is just over a metre across. And as you're right, it's the atmosphere on Mars is only about 1% of the atmosphere of Earth. At, All at, birds at would be level. flightless. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so so this this thing's got to kind of work hard to get any lift at uh, when you've only got one percent of the atmosphere. It's roughly the equipment atmosphere on Mars at its surface is about the same pressure as about forty kilometres above the Earth. Right. And is that where you'd go test this thing? Well, I don't know if they've. You know, they, I guess they've tested it in a, like a vacuum chamber or something, you know, because they can do that in uh-huh. a big lab. NASA yeah. could do that, I'm sure, and uh, they would have tried that. Yeah. So, so these rotors have to spin at 3,000 rpm in order to get the lift. But they reckon it'll travel a few hundred k- meters around about. It's only intended to do five flights at this stage, but who knows if the batteries last long enough, mm. they might do longer. It's got little solar cells to recharge the batteries. Uh, so it, so they're seeing this as a sort of a new technology to that'll accompany crawlers. So we've got Curiosity crawling around all by itself. Mm. But if Curiosity had a little uh, remote uh, helicopter thing that could survey the area, they could map out where they're going to go. At oh, the moment, an aircraft carrier. That's right, exactly, the same idea. So, you know, I mean, when they're navigating Curiosity through rocky terrain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they have to wait till they get there to see what the problem is, whereas, in fact, a helicopter could chart for them and show them images of what's coming. Hang hang on, don't we have this, that super high-res, high-rise satellite yeah, that can I mean, tell that, us the that, same that thing? that all helps. I think that a, a sort of a ter- an all-terrain helicopter flying over the terrain, they would give you far more detail mm. than you'll ever get from a, something in orbit. So, yeah, right. it's a great... T- it'll be a great technology uh, and uh, you know it'll hugely increase the range of surveys that these um, you know crawling mm. sort of 
machines do you have any worries that it might fly it might not fly i mean it's one percent of the air how are you going to get a well, helicopter to take off yeah well i mean let's say the highest a helicopter on earth's flown is about 10 kilometers above the earth so That's we're talking well. about this one's going to be equivalent to flying 40 kilometers above the earth or something in that order so mm. yeah it's it's a technical challenge i'm sure they've proved it and i say in a you can make a sort of a near vacuum in oh. a big chamber oh. and i'm sure that they've figured out it'll work um and uh, so can't wait to yeah see oh, well, it. but, but the, cam- the camera that's on it is pretty fundamental it's just a simple little color camera it weighs one gram so they're, they're not planning to sort of do much pr stuff with the results except prove that it actually can work right and then in 2022 it'll be become a uh, the next mission after that, it'll become uh, a more integral part of the survey. All right. Uh, now, Proxima Centauri is one of the closest stars to our star, um, and a flare has been recorded on it. Can we actually see flares from a star that far away? Oh, yes, that's right. Well, it's only four light years away, just mm. over four, and it is the closest star we know of. Uh, there could it's I think it's very unlikely that there are actual a true star is closer than Proxima Centauri. So let's call it the closest star. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's well known that uh, it's a red dwarf, a very dim red dwarf. It only sort of its mass is about um, you know twelve percent of the sun. So mm. it's a very dim little guy. And those small stars, red dwarfs, uh, are notorious for having strong flares. Now our sun has flares, but compared with the brightness of the sun, the flares aren't that big a deal. But when you've got a dim, dim little object like this little red dwarf, uh, then uh, Every time you have a flare, it actually increases its brightness. So the, the, they've got this automatic telescope now set up that's uh, is operating from an observatory in Chile, built by people at the University of Northern California, uh, Northern North Carolina. But it uh, it's it's uh, capable of surveying almost the entire sky every two minutes. So it's 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 a whole bunch of little tiny telescopes all on one mounting uh-huh. anyway we're getting into the details but they detected the flare from proxima centauri um and so it it increased in brightness a hundredfold in a matter of seconds you know a matter of you know 20 30 seconds now we've actually looked at these before uh, from the uh, telescope at the Auckland observatory back in uh, the early 1970s because this was discovered the these stars having these massive flares were first discovered by radio astronomers in the 1960s. And of course radio astronomy was a bit sort of more primitive then and nobody believed that stars could do this, have a flare that strong. Um, And uh, so they suspected there was something wrong with the radio telescope. So the observatory got involved with uh, um, projects uh, observing, recording with our telescope the uh, the brightness of stars like well we did Proxima and did other ones as well uh, and uh, getting their brightness in the optical in other words the sort of wavelengths our eyes can see and these did match up with the flares recorded by radio astronomers and put it the whole story to bed the, these stars have these massive flares mm. um, now the other side effect of this, this so this flare they reckon that one that has a flare like this about every this strong about once every five years it has lots of little ones going smaller ones going on they're still powerful but this one is so powerful that that we know there's a planet going around Proxima Centauri. that was a big discovery a few years ago that uh, so it's got a planet orbiting it um, and there's been speculation could it have an atmosphere could it have life and so on well basically if there was oxygen uh, in the atmosphere of this planet, assuming it has an atmosphere at all, uh, then this 
a flare this strong will basically destroy ozone. And in fact, uh, if it has a flare about every five years over a long period of time, it'll effectively destroy all the ozone. Now, once you don't have ozone, then you don't have a sort of protection from UV, mm. and therefore it means that life on the surface of that planet is likely to be sterilised right. uh, by the radiation coming from the star. It has to be close to the star to be for the plant to be warm enough. That's the problem with red dwarfs. If they're so dim and feeble that you have to have your planet going close to them to have the temperature right, right. but then they blow up in your face right. on a regular basis. So Too dangerously red, close. Red dwarfs might not be a place to look for sort of, well, any sort of uh, yeah. any sort of advanced life anyway mm. well but bl it's bloody unlikely but this makes it even less likely that's right uh, i mean this this issue of sterilization has been raised before but uh, the, the proxima's flares are very strong um and uh, so we see them very well because they're so close to us so mm -hmm. we it's a well very well studied object and it's likely to be better studied in the future okay uh now early star formation uh is and now here we've got a new cosmic mystery Yes, well, the, uh, yeah, we, we, what astronomers have been trying to figure out is when the first stars formed in the universe. So when the universe first formed out of the Big Bang, the, f the first atoms that formed were just purely hydrogen and helium. Mm. So for a long time, the universe only had hydrogen and helium in it. Sometime in the, it, it, sometime in the past, the first stars must have formed. Some of those stars would have exploded as supernovae, and it's the supernovae that make the elements, all the other elements in the periodic table, like, you know, the oxygen we're talking about and mm. carbon and all those things that are necessary for life. So until stars start exploding and, you know, filling the universe with these extra elements, you can't have any sort of life. The, uh, so the Hubble Space Telescope's been looking at a very distant galaxy. This galaxy... Uh, they're seeing at a time that is equivalent to just 550 million years after the Big Bang. Oh. Well, right now we're at sort of like, um, you know, 14, nearly, nearly 14. 14 billion years. So yeah. this, is a, this is right back at the sort of the very earliest time in the universe. Uh, and so the Hubble's seen galaxies like this before. It's got them back at that time. But what they've been able to do in this instance is actually prove that there is oxygen in that galaxy. Now, when this, so that means that not only are we seeing a very young galaxy early in its life, we're seeing it at a time after it's already had supernovae producing the oxygen. So there must have been another generation of stars in this galaxy prior to the ones we're seeing now. So right. these, so when they get this, and when you work back the time that that would have taken to make that amount of oxygen that they're seeing uh, in the galaxy, then uh, you're talking about a, that this, the stars in this galaxy must have really p started forming and becoming stars and something like 250 million years after the Big Bang. Yeah. Now, that's the, that's the furthest back we've been able to infer with any sort of real solid evidence so far, except for earlier this year there was a big story where a simple radio telescope that was being run in Western Australia uh, detected evidence that of star formation around about, or just prior to that time, between about, I think, 170 million and 250 million years after the Big Bang. So, that, so this time that they've inferred from the Hubble observations lines up with that rather well. Mm -hmm. That radio observation is yet to be confirmed by other radio astronomers, 
people are very busy building equipment to try to replicate it because it's a very important uh, observation. But so sl slowly, the little pieces of the jigsaw on the formation of the universe and its history is slowly coming to place. This is an area that sort of is known as the, to astronomers as the dark ages because we had so little information about it. We didn't have big enough telescopes. And once the James Webb Space Telescope gets into orbit, if we're lucky, if it oh. <laughs> gets into orbit, and works, and works yeah. uh, sort of about 2020 is the scheduled date now, so it's still a way away. But it, that telescope is so good that it'll see l thousands of little galaxies like this. So it won't be just like the Hubble just getting its onto one and, mm. and at the limit of its capabilities, James Webb will see them by the thousand and really be able to piece together the true story. So that's why that telescope's so important. Actually, it's worth having a look at a little video. You can just, just use Uncle Google um, on YouTube or something for the James Webb telescope, how it's supposed to work. Could they make it more complicated? Oh, it's, well, it's nuts, te isn't it? Te technically, I mean, it has been suggested that it actually just might be too complicated to ever work. Right. And that, that's the big problem. I mean, they've spent nearly nine billion American dollars on it. And, you know, astronomers are really concerned that sooner or later the government's going to pull the plug. And they've pulled plugs on big projects before. They were trying to build a big super collider thing to sort yeah. of similar to the Large Hadron Collider in Texas. They'd spend, I think, sort of something like $11 billion on it. And then they finally said, enough's enough, and right. pulled the plug. And the current administration... So apparently all the tunnels built for that are now just full of water and slush and stuff. It's just, uh, yeah, I mean... Right. But, um, so, I mean, the... Either it's, it's possible that the you know, U.S. government, Congress, could pull the plug on the funding for it. Um, it's also possible they could launch it and it not work. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> we'll talk about it in another few yeah. years, Graham. Fingers crossed. Look back and laugh, probably. Yeah, but the um, current administration isn't exactly pro-science. I think they have a real difficulty between astrolo astrology. You probably call you an astrologer. That's probably right. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, Okay, wandering star that shook up our prehistoric solar system. Really? Yeah. How close would it have to come by to to give us um, uh, turn us into a pinball well, machine? It's, well, it's got a it's got a name. They call it Schultz's star because of the astronomer that first detected it. He the astronomers sort of. Try, uh, trying to measure out and detect all the nearby stars and the motion that they had. Mm -hmm. And this particular star, the guy Schultz, who uh, first published the work on it, showed that it it must have, about 70,000 years ago, must have passed within a light year of the sun. Mm. Now, at the moment, the nearest star to us is Proxima Centauri, 4.25 light years away. So mm. this is a quarter of the distance that Proxima Centauri is away. So this star grazed past the sun and would have disturbed the Oort cloud of comets that surrounds the sun. Uh -huh. uh, so, um, but it seemed to be fairly benign. There was no particular evidence of anything catastrophic 70,000 years ago, except mm. there was a big super volcano that was sort of making life difficult for early humans. But um, so this, uh, but what these astronomers have done is taken uh, all the orbits of known objects in the solar system and uh, calculated back, um, and uh, they've essentially found there's about around about, um, I think they've looked closely at about 350 of these comets and asteroids, and, and they looked at where in the sky they were coming from. So these are oh, the, the, the characteristic of the ones they chose were ones that had what we call a hyperbolic orbit. In other words, their orbits were such that they aren't really bound to the sun. So in other words, they're 
that either they've come from another place outside our solar system and are passing mm -hmm. through like that one we saw mm -hmm. earlier this year, or uh, they uh, have um, uh, a, a, have had some interaction within the solar system that's sort of kicked up their velocity to that enough escape velocity and they're leaving the solar system because of something that's happened. So they looked at all the orbits that we had that were hyperbolic uh, and therefore not really bound to the sun anymore and looked at where they came from on the sky. And when they plotted them out across the sky, they found there was a chunk in the constellation Gemini that had 10% of them. Now, Gemini is nothing like 10% of the sky in no. terms of area. So this was a very significant statistical anomaly. And so what they is, and when they calculated back of those ones, they found that it, uh, the disturbance would have coincided with this close pass of Schultz's star. Oh. So, when, so not only was there a supervolcano sort of creating havoc on the Earth at Toba. the time... That's right. Yeah, and in Indonesia, you can see the hole that left. Yeah, that's the one. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, so, and uh, apparently uh, the human population declined to only a 1,000 reproductive yeah. individuals. So yeah, we just got our, through. Our ancestors are yeah. back at that time. Yeah. Yeah, so, so this, uh, this, so essentially what they're saying is that uh, the, um, there, was, there was quite likely disturbances to the Earth as well caused by some impacts around that time that uh, were possible because, um, uh, although, yeah, so basically they're saying that the, the close passage of Schultz's star uh, disturbed the Oort cloud enough to create a, a significant number of, uh, accelerate a number of these objects are orbiting the sun to mm. sort of leave the solar system. Now, in other words, it shook up the Oort cloud. That's always the big problem. When you get a star coming close to our sun and disturbing our Oort cloud of comets that's sitting out there, uh, then you just increase the chance of being hit by one. Right. So that's why they say that when they look at the pattern of impacts on the Earth that have sort of, you know, changed the sort of course of life on Earth, enormously some of these big impacts, uh, uh, you know, killed off the dinosaurs, for example. Um, it's possible that some of those impacts were triggered by close passages of stars mm. to us. Um, I might say that the Gaia satellite, which is currently, you know, um, measuring the velocities and positions of thousands and thousands of stars in the solar vicinity uh, is giving us, will give us in, in the coming years a phenomenal insight into which stars passed and when they passed and uh, so on, so that uh, some of this analysis will be improved a lot in the future. Oh, right. So we can get a summons and bring them to court. It was you. That's right. They'll be able be to able identify to them. And, yeah, and the ones that passed us by, and they're like, you know, maybe 20 million years ago, we'll be able to pick out them too. Mm, right. Okay. Um, now, old data revealing new evidence of um, these geysers, basically, very cold geysers coming out of Europa, Europa, a moon of Jupiter, and that, you can see it with right. binoculars. That's right, and it's first discovered by and seen by Galileo with a tiny little telescope in 1609. Yeah, so the moon Europa has always been of great interest uh, ever since, um, you know, the flybys of the voyages, where it showed that it was a, a basically a... a, a a, a moon sort of bigger than our moon or a bit, little bit bigger than our moon, but it's, it's obviously got a water ocean covered by a thick crust of ice above it. Um, and it had this sort of this fractures in the surface that looked like, um, well, we can't see what the fractures are, but they had different um, coloured 
chemicals along mm. the edges. So it looked like stuff had been coming up through the cracks and leaving deposits on the surface. So, um, and was or is there any of that material sort of basically life? Could there be life under the sort of icy crust of Europa? Water's a good start. And uh, the equivalent one is Enceladus, the moon in, in, uh, in Saturn. Now, in, in the case of Enceladus, they see these ice geysers coming out and Cassini flew famously through, flew through them and sampled them and showed it was salty water and so on. And, you know, it's, so there's no question they were happening there. The question was, are they really happening in Europa? And the only images we had or proof of, of geysers from Europa were some very marginal detections by the Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, they, they always jazz up the images a bit to make it look better, but, boy, they're right at the limit of detection, mm. in fact. So they didn't have any sort of really definitive stuff. They are sending a, a spacecraft to Europa. Um, I think it launches in 2022, uh, June of 2022, Europa Clipper, it's called, and it's intended to do, not into orbit around Europa, but it'll be flying in the Jupiter system and doing a whole about 40 passes close to Europa, mm -hmm. within 25 kilometres. So it's going to give us the final answers. But uh, anyway, somebody had this great idea of going back and looking at the data from the Galileo. Now, Galileo never saw any... It did some passes, but never actually, none of its images showed any evidence of these... The machine, geysers. not the man. That's right, yep. that's right, the satellite Europa, mm -hmm. uh, Galileo. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but uh, then they sort of realised that one of the things that, that Galileo, uh, that um, Cassini did, it had a magnetometer on it, it measured magnetic fields, and it found that when it flew through the the icy plumes of Enceladus, it uh, got a big kick on its on the magnetic field because these plumes were getting ionised by sunlight oh. and that ha warped the shape of the magnetic field of Saturn in that vicinity. So they decided, well, let's take a look at the magnetometer results from Galileo. And darn if they don't go there and find that as, as uh, Galileo flew close to Europa... Um, it got a big sort of it went through on one occasion a big warp in the magnetic field, which again strongly suggests that there was they were flying through a plume that was too thin to see with the cameras that they had, uh, but it could be what the Hubble Space Telescope might have been imaging. So this is new evidence that uh, Europa has mm. also got a hot interior, or it's, there's heat inside that's causing sort of uh, water or steam or material to sort of force up between cra through cracks and its icy surface and jet out into space and so uh, is the life under the crust of europa we you know could be i mean mm. uh, you know there's life on the bottom of the earth's oceans that never see sunlight mm. um basically uh, so you know why not on europa as well and potentially so both europa and enceladus are seen as being uh, probably the the best places on the in the solar system to try to detect uh, some life. life. Yeah, be funny if it was petrol that was coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, the Europa used to be a gas station, didn't it? It did. It's funny how gas stations just die and you forget that they were even there. Yeah, that's Atlantic. Right. When would you last fill up with some Atlantic? I know, I know. <laughs> that takes me back. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to we see... We could do a nightly uh, four-hour programme. <laughs> <laughs> Just the thing, sort of thing Weekend Variety Wireless would obsess about. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, did I cut you off in the middle of a, in, in the middle of a sentence there? Did oh, I, no, I? more or less said my piece, I all think. Right. It'll be an interesting thing in the next few years to see if that's all comes to pass. S.O. That's right, that's another one. Yeah. Another gas station. I think I had a little toy car when I was a kid that yeah. had uh, little 
toy gas pumps too. that had ESO on them. Yeah. Um, oh, well, now we've got a little bit of time and it's worth it right now to talk about what's in the sky because Jupiter is marvellous in the easy, uh, convenient time of the evening to have a look at. Yeah, no, so like even, um, I saw it last night at 8.30, uh, yeah. I had some visitors going uh, home after being around for dinner and they were sort of pointing out there's Jupiter and, oh. and you know, a, a number of them had never seen knowingly seen Jupiter before. Oh, wow. Wanted to know, how do I know? Well, A, it's really bright. That's yeah. one, one thing. In and, the right place. And it moves around if you keep watching it, so mm. keep watching it. And it's orangey. And we've just, and the Earth has just passed it on the inside track. So the Earth orbits the Sun in uh, in a, f a faster orbit. Uh, every, our, our orbits are once a year, of course. Mm. Jupiter's longer. So we've just overtaken it uh, back a, few, a couple of weeks ago. So... Um, it's a good time to look at it with a telescope. Mm. Uh, a lot of uh, amateurs around the country are using uh, now v webcams and stuff on their telescopes and getting fantastic images of Jupiter. Mm. I mean, uh, it's lovely when you can actually see the stripes. It looks like a rabbit's yeah, jersey. Yeah, well, there's been some great folks uh, in Auckland doing it. Uh, Ian Griffin, director of the Otago Museum, is, uh, does it from his backyard as well with his oh, telescope. Great. And uh, the, these folks are always posting them, so follow them on sort of Facebook and Twitter and you'll see some of the images being done locally. Um, yeah, so Jupiter's the bright one. And then a little later in the night, when the sky is sort of moved around a bit further, you'll you'll be able to see Saturn followed by Mars. So Saturn's in Sagittarius, which is, or Jupiter I might say, is in Libra. Mm. Um, but if a uh, little later in the night when the constellation Scorpius has moved higher into the sky, you'll see Sagittarius. Saturn's there. Um, it doesn't stand out as much, but because it's not so, as bright as Jupiter. But uh, a little bit lower in the sky, a little lower towards the east, you'll see the planet Mars, which is quite strongly orangey and nearly as bright as Jupiter. Mm. And uh, we're going to have a very close pass to Mars uh, in on the around about the 27th of July. Uh, it'll be the closest the Earth and Mars have been to each other since 2003. Which was the closest they'd been together since? Six, well, 60,000 years, according to NASA's calculation. So this is almost as close. Mm. So we're living at a time, you know, most people only get a few good Mars oppositions in their lifetime. We're getting two in, these two in succession. But most people don't realise that looking at Mars through a telescope is mostly a waste of time most of the time, except for that one month either side of those close oppositions. So, you know, it's uh, not a time to miss if you mm. go, you know, get to your local observatory and ha have a look at Mars as close to the end of July as you can. Mm. And, Start uh, counting and, canals. And, and it's a lot bigger. And, and you know, after, if, after we go past it, it starts to get small as it recedes in our rear vision. Right, right. It starts to get small fairly quickly. So, you know, the best time is within two weeks of that... Uh, 27th of July time. Okay. Grant, thank you very much. And we'll speak again next week. Yeah, cheers, Graham. Duncan Gar The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Oh, yeah, a bit of a heads up for tomorrow night. There's a documentary on the Dock Edge Festival called Whispering Truth to Power. And it's about an astounding person by the name of. Tuli Masundela. Man, is she a cool customer or what? She got Jacob Zuma and said, you're corrupt, pay up or get out. 
And he said, I don't like that. I don't like being talked to like that. And she said, I don't care. Man, is she a cool customer. We speak with the director tomorrow evening between 10 o'clock and 11. Max Cryer's coming in to do all sorts of royally stuff. Uh, between 10 o'clock and 11. He might be in a bit earlier than that, but it's a bit of a change of schedule if you're used to Max coming Radio in, Live hearing him at 9.30.